0: This is Donna Otto, and we are modern homemakers, and I'm very glad that we have this technology. I've been saying this for years that we've been doing these podcasts. I'm still stunned. I really am that I can sit in my study, and these days with the virus, I can sit in my study, my producer can sit in her study, the executive producer can sit in her study, So everybody's in their proper places. Nobody is breaking our uh, confinements. And we are able to bring these podcasts to you. First of all, I'm always surprised. I think I'm always surprised that people are really listening. Now, the metrics tell us you are. But the other day, we did the show. We put it up. And hours later, there were... Many of you who took advantage of our offer to um, engage in the power of the table as a tool to helping your family who's now eating three meals a day together, or maybe it's just you and your husband, or maybe it's you sitting down by yourself. So, so thank you for that affirmation, but I pray that it will encourage you. And if you didn't hear that podcast, I want to say it to you again. And today I want to say even more we have been making these videos available to you at a cost, which helps defray the cost of the ministry. So until the virus is over, we want to also make the organization um, class uh, available to you as a gift. The organization class came up because I was meeting with some women by phone, and um, they were talking about, they've been wanting to purge, wanting to organize, wanting to clean, wanting to reorder, and um, even went through some of their rooms showing the clutter, which normally, you know, we don't go into everybody's bedrooms and laundry rooms. And in doing that, um, we talked a little bit about organization, and I thought, yes, maybe some of you are finding a 30-minute window to do what we started talking about several weeks ago, which is you have time to do the things you've been dreaming about, a book you wanted to read, more prayer time, more Bible study, more quality conversations with your family, more purging and cleaning. So we're making the secrets to getting more done in less time during this virus time also available. And now I read um, a few days ago, This piece of poetry sent to us from a friend of mine, but it was written by Lynn Unger. I want to read it again to remind you that when this is over, and it will be over, it will change its face forever, that our faces will be changed forever, but this will be over. I want you not to have missed what God's calling you to do. So here are a few lines written by Lynn Unger. What if you thought of, as the Jewish considered the Sabbath, the most sacred of times, this pandemic? Cease from travel. Cease from buying and selling. Give up just for now on trying to make the world different than it is. Sing. Pray. Touch only those to whom you commit your life. Center down. And when your body has become still, reach out with your heart. Know that we are connected in ways that are terrifying and beautiful. Know that our lives are in one another's hands. Surely that has become clear. Do not reach out your hands, reach out your heart, reach out your wounds, reach out your tendrils of compassion that move invisibly where we cannot touch. Promise this world your love, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, as long as we all shall live. And I hope one day to have a conversation with you that has helped me tremendously in each morning as I be doing my day, reading this simple and and really feels to me prophetic um, offering. So, what are you doing with your hands? I, I want you to know that something else I've been considering is we're all still working and we want to work and we want to serve you but I also want our staff to be free to be at home. Uh, One of our producers has a a dog and a kid and has to say, "Now, quiet. And that's hard to do. Um, We don't want our staff families to miss opportunities to have quality time. So in the next few days, we'll make a decision about what podcasting will look like after Holy Week. But for today, I want to pick up the fourth statements from the cross, the fourth of seven statements that Jesus spoke from the cross. They've been commonly called the last seven words or the last words of Christ. I'm calling them statements because I, I tend to be exacting about my language often, and I want you to know that it's not a word, it's a statement. And today's statement is found in Matthew, chapter 27, verse 46. And he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani." That is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Mark fifteen thirty-four, And remember the synoptic Gospels, and it's, You don't know what I mean by that. On our website, you will find a document as a free resource called The Week of Weeks, The Last Passover Week, Ending with the Crucifixion. And in that document, which I put together many years ago, and it's still available, we have a passage of scripture for each day of the week the week of weeks, the Holy Week. So today would be day number three because the first day was Palm Sunday and the second day was Monday and today is the third day. And if you look at this document, you'll see that the synoptic Gospels are all written across the page so you can read the same account in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But you'll see that John does not spend much time in the early part of the week. He doesn't even talk about many things that the other gospel writers talked about. He really gets invested and starts talking quite a lot, dear John, on the fifth day of the week. So on this third day of the week of weeks, I want to talk to you about the fourth statement that Christ gave from the cross. Now in this statement, Matthew and Mark both speak of it, and there's a slightly different take on what they have to say. I also want to remind you that so much of this oh, week of weeks is so much of Jesus' life and I may have said this on air, but I've been staying faithful with a little project that I'm doing which is the difference between what Jesus spoke and how he lived. And many times we hear him quoting from the Old Covenant, from the Old Testament. That's what they had, and they had these big scrolls, and they were in the synagogues, and they rolled them down, and pulled them out and rolled them down and read from them. Now, this fourth remark, this fourth statement, is really in the depths of Psalm 22, it starts with the psalmist, this lament of David's. It's a psalm of desolation, of desperation, the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David. And he starts at, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David saying these exact words, which Christ repeats on the cross. Why are you so far from helping me? Come the words of my groaning. Now, when I read the passage to you, I read these words, which mean the same thing, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And are the opening lines of Psalm 22. But we find that this psalm keeps intruding in this play here at Golgotha. And there are other phrases of it, um, one of which, if you've been in the church for a long time, you've heard it, but I'm a worm and no man, scorned by them and despised by the people, all mock at me. They make mouths at they wag their tongues and heads. Well, Christ had committed this psalm to memory and he committed his cause to the Lord. And now he's saying, deliver me from them, rescue me from them. You might ask, where are all the Father's love being showed right now? Where is all the comments of God saying to Jesus as he rises out of baptism, Behold, behold my son in whom I am well pleased. Um, or at the resurrection. It, it certainly does take God to look like he's a little uncaring and he's possibly not there, not involved. And nothing could be further from the truth, nothing could be further from the truth, if anything what we see in this home is that he is reminding us of how much he cares for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hid his face from him but has heard when he cried out to, to him now, I, I I i this duality. I say, here is Jesus on the cross crying out to his father. Why have you forgotten me? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why do I feel so betrayed by what's happening? Well, he was man, and he was feeling those things. And here we see in this psalm, which Jesus is quoting from, that he also says he has heard when he cried out to him. God is hearing Jesus' cry. He knows that this cry is coming. There is no way that we cannot fully, un- that we can fully understand this complicated relationship between the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the relationship between God and Jesus, Father and Son, the relationship to the Old Testament and to the New Testament, this psalm concludes with posterity shall serve him. Men shall tell of the Lord to the coming generation and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn that he wrought. I'm sorry, there are times when I read these things and I really feel speechless. And all of you know I'm very seldom speechless. (laughs) But here's the song written by David, hundreds of years before Jesus is saying it and reminding you, thousands of years later, that he hears us, that he hears us, that he is coming, sending Jesus to tell of the Lord. To this coming generation, which is you and me, and your children, and my grandchildren, and your grandchildren, that this deliverance of the people has been done. It is finished. It has been wrought by this. What appears in in the in scene as if he has been forsaken? Why have you abandoned me? This has never happened to Jesus as life on earth. The disciples. Are all clean. No one is there. Uh, Verse 24, for he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face, but he heard when I cried to him. He's crying out because God is doing something and has done something, and posterity will prove that the coming generations that that be true. Uh, I I was thinking about the practice of fellowship, the discipline of fellowship, the discipline of community, and how the word of Christ on the cross, having this community and fellowship with God the Father and the Spirit, and now this cry is being repeated in the gospel, and now I am in 2020 reading it aloud and suggesting to you that it is the cry of our hearts that he satisfied that his pain his sense of feeling abandoned and forsaken and betrayed i feel betrayed if somebody tells me something my husband said to me one day honey do you really mean betrayed it sounds like such a
1: strong word
0: and i thought Maybe I don't really mean betrayed, but I certainly am disappointed. I certainly expected you to do what you said you were going to do. And so here we find this word, and scholars suggest that when God says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's really not saying it like that. He is screaming it. He is screaming it. The Greek word suggests that it is with a loud voice more like a scream. And the pain must be getting to a place that we could never understand. We've read, we've heard, we've seen movies, The Passion, that describe how painful this death process is. Remember, these are statements spoken by Jesus, who is man from the cross, as he's being killed by asphyxiation. Yet he's still crying out. He's still speaking, and now he cries out with a louder voice, and it appears to be the same sort of loud voice. Now, Mark's cry of dereliction is found immediately by the affirmation of the centurion. And I find this little juxtaposition where he says, why have you forsaken me? And then the centurion. Now, remember the mess that's going on. There's noise and mayhem and mockery and confusion and crying and um, so much is going on. And yet the centurion responds and Mark records it. Truly, this man was the son of God. In this cry, some might find despair. I think when I read this, why have you forsaken me? I want to lay my own forsakenness over it or under it. And in that, I have felt despair. God doesn't feel despair. Jesus doesn't feel despair. God finds hope. God finds hope. Many of you have heard or taken a class, a philosophy class and have read the philosophers who have said, God is dead. Well, God is not dead. They've tried to tell us God is dead. But the Gospel of John tells us that I am never alone because the Father is with me. In the world I will have tribulations, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And that is exactly what Jesus is experiencing right then. He is having tribulations, but be of good share. He, he has overcome the world. He has overcome what is happening to him. He's not a victim. He is not a victim. He had the power to call 10,000 angels. He had the power when he was in the wilderness for 40 days to, to have food manufactured, you know, brought in some carryout, uh, washed and cleansed and wearing gloves. But no, he took the 40 days and then went through the temptation. He could have called 10,000 angels. He is firmly in charge and in control of. Of this process I read this phrase as I was studying this passage this statement and the author said Jesus is relentlessly obedient I just I just give you seconds to think about that Jesus is relentlessly obedient I felt very convicted I thought, I am not relentlessly obedient. Jesus has been obedient every step of the way to his leaving his father and coming to earth step by step, emerging through the dark birth canal, entering into the darkness of the human world. He has been relentlessly obedient. My friend Elizabeth Elliott used to say that anything that is not instant obedience is disobedience. And I must tell you that through the decades that I've heard her say that and known that, I've been in and out with it. I think, oh, I guess when I'm wanting God to see my heart that I really do want to be obedient, but I'm human, I use that excuse. I think I, I want to say it's not instant, but I'm headed toward obedience. But this phrase, Jesus is relentlessly obedient. He's never disobedient. So I think the big idea here is that there's a failure going on at the cross. And I want to, to assuage that by saying that the dereliction of the cross is, dereliction is the building is dilapidated. Uh, something valuable has been let go the gardens are not what they used to be and john who doesn't enter into the discourse of the last week until we get to these last days and he says he uses the phrase it is finished well it's another frame in this picture at the cross this picture of three crosses, this picture of today you will be me in paradise, spoken to the criminal, this picture of what we're going to talk about um, in the days ahead, this picture of his mother and his loved John. John's accounts are all, always more meditative, more tranquil. You know, John is like going to sleep after accomplishing a great work. And what he says is it is finished. No, well, I have to tell you that. I have mocked that phrase in my lifetime uh, because I have said, All right, kids, everybody get finished here. You know what Jesus says? It, it is finished. It's a good thing to get finished. Oh, that was terrible of me to do because that's not at all what he is talking about. And Jesus finishing the tasks that God asked him to finish, Jesus being willing, relentlessly obedient. now it is finished. He is about to take his last breath. And another frame of this picture is not the pain, not the sorrow, this picture of Golgotha, but the victory and the glory that has to come. And John has had a vision about this and he talks about the future. We are part of the future. Some scholars say that this whole statement has to do with the language was it greek was it aramaic was it hebrew yet they all tend to describe that the abandonment the forsakenness the left to die alone betrayed and abandoned is exactly what um, we're trying to be told now, one of the writers i read used these very harsh words that this passage meant that jesus had been abandoned thrown aside, roadkill, roadkill. And I read the quote um, about this statement from an author who quoted Joseph Conrad, The Heart of Darkness, and the character of Kurtz, who is a slaver and has spent most of his days in trafficking. And he says, quote, The horror, the horror. We too have looked into the heart of darkness and seen the horror. To be sure, at the heart of darkness, there is also hope. Because the word is not the last word. The word is not the last word. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are not the last words. Those are not the spirit coming. Those are not Jesus being incarnate in us. And I think it's important to see the cross to feel the cross, to understand so much of the cross as we possibly can, but to know and accept that it is a mystery. It is still God's plan, and it's tempting there to stay there and not rush to the end of the story. It really is. Some denominations in the world, um, when, when they speak about the crucifixion, the passion of Christ, they speak about it in a way that it makes it sound like the only thing Jesus did was die on the cross. Oh, Jesus did so much more, so much more. And I think that I have to say personally that my own fear of abandonment, which is very um, serious in my life, sometimes it's the reliving of all the serious relationships that have left me, maybe for a season. Sometimes forever, and they left by their will or stubbornness or disobedience or personal pain. But they still left me, and I did feel abandoned. And my own fear of being abandoned sometimes becomes very real in my soul, and I I recognize it. And it took me a long time to recognize to have the self revelation and remember. I've said this to you about the great female writer who said about humility, that what does it take to be humble? It takes self-knowledge. And I, I believe that so fully because even the little modicums of self-knowledge that I have help me, help me to be what little humility I have more humble. So it's a complicated statement. It's not easily defined. We do not know exactly what's going on, but I want you to know that the passion of Christ, which is often spoken of when we think of the cross, is defined best by understanding the phrase passion as overcome by something. Passion, overcome by something. In the last few days, I've been thinking about that phrase. And for me, I, I, always, I always try I associate with things that I have had passion over. And one of the things I've had passion over was falling in love with David Otto. I was overcome by him. It was so exciting and so romantic. And I think, how have we practiced keeping that passion alive in marriage and in friendship? I have had passion about helping young women and encouraging them. You encourage me when you write and tell us how it's going, when you tell us you're listening to the podcast, when you tell us you're buying the resources and, and using them in your walks of life. How do we keep that passion being overcome by something? I think we keep it by staying close to him, being overcome by his love and mercy as Jesus was overcome by the love and mercy, the grace and generosity of God the Father. We know why. We know why he went to the cross, so we might have the privilege of relationship with Christ and the freedom from the burden of sin. Jesus goes to the abyss, to the dark, as as scholars would say, to the dark side. And we can refuse him and betray him, or we can open our hearts to his love and healing and recognition that he was separated from his father as a great sacrifice to allow us to be the generation to come who might hear of his love. Well, statement number four takes my breath away, as each of these statements have. And I pray that it will encourage you in this week, holy week, week of weeks, the last Passover week that ends on the weekend with the crucifixion. Remember, the common beginning and the uncommon finish. Go out and make it an uncommon day of relentless obedience.